Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. The Whitney Humanities Center at Yale University presents a conversation between Michael Pollan and Jack Hitt, entitled Michael Pollan Raw. This event is part of the Frankie Program in Science and the Humanities. Well, welcome to New Haven, Connecticut, Michael. Thank you, Jack. Good uh, to be here. And as you know, I'm a professional journalist, so let me start with my <laughs> ambush question. Now, I know you're a Game of Thrones freak and probably seen a few episodes of Girls, but here's my question. <clears throat> One episode of Girls What's your zero of Game of Thrones. <laughs> What's your Food Channel guilty pleasure? What does Michael Pollan watch on television? About food? Yeah. You know, I've, I've watched a few episodes of, uh, of uh, Top Chef, and I used to like The Iron Chef when it first came on. I found that kind of entertaining. But I don't know if it's a guilty pleasure. It's sort of more of a professional obligation to, to, st <laughs> to stay up on what's going on. I mean, I am fascinated by the phenomenon of, of cooking on television, which I think is a really weird and interesting thing going on. I mean, you have millions of Americans who spend more time watching people cook on TV than actually cook themselves. <laughs> Which is weird when you think about it, because at the end of that half hour, you don't get anything to eat. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, and, I've, and in this book, I spent a little time trying to unpack what well, that so, mystery would, would be You know, about. in the old days, when the cook would go on television, like the Today Show, they'd always have that little note at the bottom. It's like, for the recipe, you right. know, right off to, you know, the Today Show and get the recipe. But none of these shows end with a recipe. No, not so the what, ones in prime time. I mean, the ones right. in the evening. The ones during the day, you can still get some how-to. You can learn how to, you know, make a frittata or something. But uh, but at night, it's it's game show. It's spectacle. It's fire and right. So and what's deadlines. your like? Why are we doing that? What's what's going on in us? Well. I think, I thought about this because, you know, there's lots of other things in our lives that we've outsourced without looking back, you know, right. sewing your clothing, um, changing the oil in your car. There are no TV shows about these things. Um, <laughs> cooking is different. And what I think it is, is I actually think we're nostalgic for the experience, which we all had as kids, or most of us had as kids, or at least in our generation and before, of watching our moms usually cook. And, and being in the kitchen and these amazing smells and this rising anticipation and all this alchemy, you know, right. that happens in the kitchen. Um, it was really fun to be a part of that. And we don't get that anymore. So, and I think there's something really primal about cooking. I mean, these, these, these are the transformations of nature into culture that, that really made us who we are. So you're saying it's not just the, it's not that we miss the cooking, it's that we miss watching the cooking. Yeah. Um, right. I think that's right. I mean, I think that there are two, there are two experiences. There's cooking and there's definitely watching cooking, which is something that a lot of us have grown up doing. And, and it was really central to our, our, our sense of our, our, our parents and, um, uh, and, and, you know, the sensory experience of being in your home. If you think back to your childhood and, you know, you, yeah, you can imagine, you know, you have memories of playing outside and doing things, but, but those, the, the, there's so much sensory sat satisfaction that happened in the kitchen. Right, um, and, and all that bonding and all that sort of like, you know, community that happened in there. So we miss that. And that so special much. kind of conversation that happens when people are doing stuff, not mm -hmm. just talking to each other, right? right? It's a very natural form of conversation. Um, I think it's, uh, you, I mean, you know, you have uh, teenage kids. Mm -hmm. that the, best, the best time to talk to them is while you're doing something together rather than having a conversation. 
you know, you might be driving or you might be chopping onions or, or um, uh, you know, working in the garden, but that's the easiest way of having those conversations. So, so many of these guys on that, on, on the, t on the shows are men. Yeah. Right. Um, and here we are, two guys talking about cooking. Right. And not fancy cooking, chopping onions cooking. Right. Yeah. So has Betty Friedan's dream come true? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, uh, I wouldn't say it has. I mean, you know, the, the professional cook, has been male for a long time. Mm -hmm. Even while women were stuck with all the work of cooking for, you know, uh, since, since, for a very long time, um, there was this other thing, getting paid to cook. Men right. often got to do that. I do think there is some evidence, and there's some research to suggest this, that men are cooking more. And that the, since, um, we the, just don't wash the clothes. <laughs> that's right. right. We yeah, don't. Right. We definitely don't, we don't wash, wash the clothes. The clothes right. But we're we cook and uh, in greater numbers. And you know, we're raising children. I think today, who actually don't. And this isn't true across the society, but but certainly my son and I'll bet your daughters don't think of cooking as a um, as a, a female you know right. job. Um, they, they see male cooks in the culture being celebrated, you know, who are, you know, often incredibly macho and, and, uh, and, 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 you know, very important characters in the culture. And so I think we, ha there is an opportunity in this to, to build a culture of cooking that wouldn't be as, um, uh, as, as, you know, kind of isolated female work. So what you're saying, there, so men are now in the kitchen in, Service to Betty. Well, they're actually dream. often in in front of the grill outside. Often there, right? right. Yeah. Okay, but they were always there. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, right. but even the numbers yeah. of that, um, women are, you know, women are insisting that their husbands cook more, right. and husbands are comfortable cooking on the grill. Right. And women have also pretended they didn't know how this was done <laughs> for a very long time. You know, I, I they treat grilling as this mystery that. They couldn't possibly master, and would you please, you know, take this outside and grill it? And that it, I learned recently is a subterfuge. Right. <laughs> it's not that hard. They know how to do it. <laughs> Judith, Judith grills when I'm away. <laughs> but there are other men in the kitchen besides husbands, right? Yeah. Who else is in the kitchen? Well, sons. Well, I'm talking. I'm thinking of corporations. Oh yeah, well, those yeah. men. Yeah, they're in the. Well, yeah, they're in the pantry. Yeah. So, well, that's right. I mean, you know, that's those are the men that we don't think about right. uh, who are cooking, and they're the. You know, it's Steve Sanger, the president of General Mills, and and whoever is the president of Pillsbury, um, uh, and that's one of the ironies. I mean, um, you know, we've outsourced cooking to corporations to a very large extent. Um, to give you some sense of the magnitude, I mean, the average American spends 27 minutes a day cooking now, which has fallen steadily uh, since the 60s. And the, um, uh, and the, let's see, and male cooking's gone up a little bit, but um, basically 57% of meals today are cooked. Home cooked, but the definition has had to be really loosened. Oh, that was what I was going to ask you. So, what does yeah. it mean to cook a meal? It means, according to General Mills, right? It, it, a home cooked meal is one that involves some assembly of ingredients. So, in other words, 
merely peel off the aluminum foil. No, it's got a, a little further than that. A okay. Nuking a pizza is not <laughs> cooking. However, pouring bottled salad dressing over pre-washed lettuce or assembling a sandwich is cooking. Scratch cooking. Uh, <laughs> even if you even if you got the meat from right. the deli and the mayonnaise and you know uh, and, and bought the roll. So they you know we've definitely defined cooking downward. Uh, for the purposes of marketing, and um, yeah, and it's and corporations uh, are doing most of the cooking. Do you have any numbers on like, like real cooking? Like, let's still go back, going back to scratch cooking. What you know, like I asked. Grandma cooking. There's uh, this uh, in the book. Uh, I interviewed this marketing expert, this wonderful crusty guy named Harry Balzer, who's been tracking. America. I'm sorry. What is his name? Harry Balzer. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, don't go for the Okay, I'm, no, I'm, I'm, yeah. I, I was doing my best deadpan there. I was just, uh, I, you know. I thought we were at Yale. And it, you know, you wouldn't make jokes like that. Anyway, he's been tracking America. That's not a Bart habits. Simpson joke? Are you sure? Okay, keep going. Yeah. He's been tracking cooking habits for a very long time, and he's really cynical at this point. And, you know, he'll tell you that most Americans are cheap and lazy, and that's why they don't cook. And um, uh, he, so he's... What was the question? Well, I wanted to know. I wanted to know if there was any real numbers about. Oh yeah, real oh, about cooking. real cooking. Real, what, about we real cooking. Cooking. what we would call What we would call not sandwich. He making, said the numbers like... are too low to measure. Really? <laughs> yeah. He don't. He doesn't even ask questions. Now, do we have a sense of like how precipitous that decline was? Like, what 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 was it? You know, in 1965 or something. Uh, do we have any sense uh, of home cooked meals? Well, yeah. first they defined them a little more tightly, right. and they were you know 60, 70 percent of meals were home cooked. And Are we talking like 30 years ago? Or yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Pretty, I mean, the 60s is where the, the decline really begins. Right. But it, it's important to understand when we talk about this decline that we think of it as a consumer-driven phenomenon and that women were going back to work and there was less time, all of which is true, but, but there is another narrative. And, 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 and this was kind of surprising to me, mm -hmm. that corporations had been trying to worm their way into the kitchen for much longer and long before women went to work. Right. Um, trying to convince us to eat processed foods. And it really takes place after World War II. You had all these technologies that were invented for the war effort. Um, you know, how to, you know, uh, make milk survive for months on end and, 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 you know, field rations, basically. And, and how could we take this brilliant technology of field rations uh, and get people to actually eat it? Um, Wait a minute, are you saying there's like a line from, from field rations to like the Swanson's pot pie? Yeah. And to wow. Hamburger Helper, and mm -hmm. to Tang, and all these kind of things. Um, and so a lot of effort had gone into developing these, this shelf-stable, um, acceptable, uh, you know, pseudo-food um, for the war effort. And as in so many other things, there was this effort to convert those technologies to peacetime uses. Mm -hmm. And the industry pushed really hard to uh, then get women to buy these products. And women rejected them en masse. They just didn't feel that this was cooking. So when you got a, a cake mix, uh, for example, they could not get people to use these cake mixes, which were essentially just add water. And they did this marketing research, and they found that women felt that that was not cooking. They couldn't take credit for a cake that was made from a mix. And then they figured out, they did a little more market research, and they figured out if you didn't use a powdered egg, which they were using, and actually asked the cook to crack open an egg. <laughs> that would do it. And then you could take credit. <laughs> and, and, and it was actually when they stopped including the powdered eggs and put in the cracked eggs, which happens in the late 50s, 
that they could sell cake mixes. And yeah, so they've been, but it's it's a project and it's a supply driven project. And there were um, uh, there was a lot of resistance because mm -hmm. it was felt that part of your obligation as a parent was to cook for your kids. You didn't let other people do it. So there's this line where we feel like we're no longer are cooking. And I take it that General Mills and these other companies have done great work in sort of circumscribing the, the oh, yeah. lines of that, that border, right? They have. I mean, it's, it's been a, a, a very sustained effort and very sophisticated. And many of the products are designed to give you something to do, mm -hmm. even though they could be designed to give you nothing to do. Right. Um, and, uh, and, but it, it also, I think the key breakthrough was, uh, you, you mentioned Betty Friedan mm -hmm. earlier, and, and she is a key figure because she was, uh, you know, raising the specter of renegotiating the relationships be be between men and women around chores right. and child rearing. And she was saying that this was unjust and, um, and it needed to be changed. And she was, asking for a very uncomfortable conversation around kitchen tables all over America. And it happened. And we've all been party to those uncomfortable conversations over who's going to do what, um, especially when both members of the household are working. And the industry saw this as a great opportunity. Whatever you're going to do with you know, the cleaning and the clothes and the child care, we can take care of the cooking. And they, they actually, the industry actually adopted feminist rhetoric. Uh, beginning in the in the seventies, and so there's a, there was a famous campaign that Kentucky Fried Chicken had, where they uh, it was on billboards all across America uh, in the seventies, and it was a bucket of of fried chicken, and over over it was a very simple headline, two words: women's liberation. Wow. <laughs> and you know everybody was happy to have that conversation diffused, um, and they basically the industry said, hey, we we got you covered. Don't argue anymore. And, uh, and that was a real breakthrough for, for industrial cooking. So since real scratch cooking is now this uh, almost unmeasurable um, number, according to your, your uh, consultant, um, I don't think it's quite as bad as he says. But I mean, remember, he's part of the food industry. Right, right. And he wants to minimize this as, right. as, as a realistic option. Right. So you know, I was looking through some of your, I was looking at, the, at your other books, and I, you know, there's a nice sort of arc or a narrative arc here, right? I mean, Botany of Desire looks at our interaction with the, with the food when it's in the ground, mm -hmm. right? When, it's, uh, when, when we're all co-evolving, right? And then Omnivore's Dilemma sort of looks at it when, when it's on the plate, right? So in a sense, is this book trying to examine this non-existent space in between? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny. I, you know, I didn't, I was, I was surprised to end up working on this book, mm -hmm. because I had been looking at the food chain. I mean, I've been writing about the food chain for about 12 years. Um, I did a piece on genetically modified food that mm -hmm. ended up in Botany and Desire. And, um, uh, and Omnivore's Dilemma was sort of on the plate, but a lot of it was about agriculture and farming. And, and, I, and I looked at uh, you know conventional industrial corn farming and organic farming and local farming. And uh, so that was the beginning of the food chain. Right. And I found that really interesting. Where does your food come from? And then I, then I wrote two books about health and nutrition. I wrote In Defense of Food, What Happens to the Food After You Eat It? Um, and what does it do to your body? And, and what's, why are we so you know, struggling with chronic disease and obesity? And, um, but then I realized there was this missing middle link, which is the food coming out of the ground, how does it get transformed into meals? 
And it turned out that those transformations, and I didn't appreciate this going in, had a tremendous bearing both on the farm, looking back to the beginning of the food chain, and on our health. And let me explain how. The, um, uh, whether you cook or not has an enormous effect on what kind of agriculture we have. To the extent we're letting corporations cook for us, they are going to support huge farms uh, producing monoculture. Big deals with big. I mean, General Mills is not going to be able to buy from a small local farm. They don't know how to go about it. They don't want to have that many contracts. Right. They want one carrot producer. They don't want a hundred carrot producers. Walmart is sort of trying a little bit to regionalize their sourcing, and they're finding it's very difficult. Um, they don't know how to do it. Um, so if we are interested in rebuilding a more regional or local food system, I think it's going to top out pretty soon if people aren't willing to cook. I just don't think you can have, if all the cooking is being done by corporations and industry, all the farming will be done by comparably scaled institutions with all the problems that, and it's not just that bigness is bad, but, but bigness tends to move toward, toward monoculture, and that's the original sin of, of uh, I think, American agriculture. And then on the other side, there's all this fascinating research uh, that suggests that um, when you outsource your cooking, you put on a lot of weight. Um, the way corporations cook differently than humans do. They use lots of salt, fat, and sugar. Um, why? Well, because they like to use the cheapest possible raw ingredients and dress them up and make them palatable. And those are the three you know, primary colors of, of, of the food industry, salt, fat, and sugar. They also use lots of novel chemicals to keep the food looking fresher uh, than it really is. Um, because if you're making that pot pie, you need a lot of emulsifiers to keep the oils and the water-based uh, parts from separating and looking really nasty. Um, they, so they use a lot of chemicals that individuals don't have in their pantry. Um, and so people, you know, as it turns out, and I was kind of surprised to learn this, the most important thing about your diet uh, is not any particular nutrients, good or bad, that are in it or out of it, or any particular foods. It's, it's the activity. Of, of if it was it cooked by human beings. And some of us can afford to have very well-paid human beings cook for us and go out to really nice restaurants that do source well. But for most people, um, a healthy diet will depend on a human being cooking it, um, presumably somebody you're living with and or you. And um, uh, we know that people who eat uh, home-cooked food are have lower weight, uh, much healthier in various ways, and not to mention their family lives are, uh, you know, healthier in, in the psychological sense. You know, we all grew up learning that we eat three meals a day. It's what we're told, right? It's what we say all the time. Yeah. We eat three meals a day. What's the reality? <laughs> the reality today is there's there's something called secondary eating, which the Department of Agriculture has been has begun to measure. Um, and secondary <laughs> eating is eating while you're doing other things. If we were eating now. You know, we're doing some I'm secondary drinking. <laughs> um, and this has taken off yeah. dramatically. And we now spend 78 minutes a day engaged in secondary eating. This is while watching television. This is while driving. And we spend less time eating meals. And I don't know what the number is for meals. It's in the 50, 50 minutes or something like that. It's, it's, uh, so we spend more time in secondary eating than primary eating, which is what we used to call meals. Um, the problem is that that secondary eating tends to be uh, highly processed food, it's snack food. 
And if you look at the growth in calories uh, over the last 30 years, the obesity epidemic is usually dated to 1980. Mm -hmm. So what are we eating more of? Well, it's food produced, it's processed food. Um, it's, uh, you know, the calories of refined flour and refined corn and soy, basically. Right. Um, and it's secondary eating. Um, so as uh, meals have gone down, secondary eating gone up, and on balance, we're eating almost another, in terms of calories, almost another whole meal a day. So actually, it's not three a day, it's almost four a day. When wow. you crunch all that secondary eating in there. So if we were to construct a graph that had like obesity rates on the bottom and cup holders in minivans along the <laughs> left side, that would just be one of these lines that went like that. Yeah. Right? yeah. I, I don't know why we don't have microwaves in the glove compartment yet, but it's, <laughs> it's coming. Mark my words. <laughs> So, so for this book, you decided to go back into the kitchen and explore this terra incognita that we abandoned some 30 years ago. Yeah, it was the part of the food chain I thought I knew best, you know, because I, I cook. I, I've always liked to cook. Not, not that ambitiously, not with great skill, but that's what we did. And I thought, you know, as a journalist, you usually want to go out and learn about stuff you don't know anything about, you know, the real terra incognita. But it turned out that, yeah, this area, this, this link in the food chain that I thought was hidden in plain sight uh, was a lot more interesting and complicated than I realized. Right, so you got these phyla of cooking, right? So there's right. like fire and roasting outdoors, and there's like uh, water and cooking on a stovetop, and um, you know, there's uh, uh, air, and you discuss cooking bread. And then there's your fourth phyla, fermentation. Earth. Right, earth. Yeah. Uh, and your big, your big topic there is sauerkraut, right. one of them. So is that really a fourth phylum, or <laughs> did you feel like you had to add one more, you know, chapter? I mean, sauerkraut, oh, no. really? Sauerkraut compared to bread? <laughs> <laughs> so tell what it, what is it, I mean, what is fermentation? Why is that a, like a fourth order of Right. Uh, well, the book, is, the book is divided into these four parts, each of which correspond to one of the classical elements. So it starts with fire, which is the most basic, primitive, oldest kind of cooking putting meat on a flame, which may go back as much as uh, two million years. So before we were even Homo sapiens, Homo erectus knew how to do right. this, and it, and it conferred huge advantages on, on that species. Um, and then water is cooking with pots, everyday home cooking, uh, any kind of liquid, um, you know, stews, soups, braises, um, and combining things in pots, which happens much later. It's like we've only had pottery for about 10,000 years. Uh, so it kind of rises with the birth of agriculture, and that makes sense because you have all these grains that you need to soften and water and things like that. Air is baking, bread, and the history of, you know, the West is very tied up with the history of bread. Um, and earth is, yeah, I would argue it might be the most important. Um, not just sauerkraut, that's, you know, the synecdoche of all of uh, <laughs> fermented food, um, but uh, is the one I tried first. And, and earth, I, I call it earth because uh, the processes of cooking with microbes is similar to what goes on in the earth, and some of the microbes come from the earth. It's basically microbial cooking without heat. Um, and that's been a very important part of human history. Um, before refrigeration... So we're talking about like pickling. We're I'm talking, talking about, about pickling vegetables. Right. I'm talking about making cheese. Right. Uh, uh, but also fermenting meat products. I mean, we eat a lot of fermented meat. Right. Um, uh, when you're eating sausages and cured meats of various kinds, there's a bacteriological transformation that's gone on. Um, and then alcohol. 
um, which is also the product of fermentation. Uh, and I talk about making beer and right. a little bit about wine and right. things like that. These are kind of the most amazing transformations of all because they're done without heat. And they're done by manipulating other creatures. Uh, well, but also microbes. it's like, it's, you know, the other three are these kind of like heroic almost sort of elements, you know. Um, where we can pretend we can, we're we can in pretend charge. There, where can, yes, yeah. exactly. Right. Uh, this one, it feels like, you know, this is the downhill slide into, you know, something going bad. Rot. Right, rot. Well, it's, it's, right. This it's is the on well way to managed. putrid. Right. right, right. It's rot interrupted. It's, right. it's well-managed rot. Um, and it's true. And, and basically what happens to, the, the amazing thing is, I mean, sauerkraut. I don't know whether you like sauerkraut. Maybe you like kimchi better. Um, and I like making kimchi better than sauerkraut. It's a little uh, easier. Um, what's less the, dif what's the difference in terms of the, okay, well, the, the physics? The um, sauerkraut is cabbage, salt, you're done, basically. You, if you shred cabbage, salt it, put it in a crock, you don't have to inoculate it. It's just amazing. These, these microbes, lactobacillus, are on the leaves of the cabbage, they're in, on your hands, they're probably in the crock, and they go to work digesting this food, which is say rotting. I mean, every, everything that lives is colonized by a bunch of microbes waiting for it to die. <laughs> <laughs> or, or a cut, you know, right, that, right, that yeah. torn leaf, right, and right. get in and get right. to work. I mean, yeah. they're, they're waiting for you right now. And Their virtues have just yet to be discovered, yeah. I believe. Right, yeah. <laughs> that was the first miracle. Right. The, the only ingredient in sauerkraut is salt. Mm -hmm. um, kimchi, you use a different kind. You can use that kind of normal round cabbage, but traditionally use Napa cabbage, and you add a lot of spices. You add uh, ginger and garlic and red pepper, and, um, and it's got so many uh, strong spices that it... it you can control the fermentation a little more easily. You don't get molds, which right. can make a sauerkraut. If you ever had mushy sauerkraut, it's because these these uh, these yeasts that uh, or molds put down these uh, filaments right. destroy the pectin and make it mushy. And that happened to me. Um, uh, kimchi that doesn't seem to happen because of all the garlic and ginger. Um, and it's but it's made the same way. You salt it and cut it up and cut it roughly so there's a lot of surface area for the microbes to work on. You don't want a really sharp knife, oddly enough. And um, and then it just happened. And you, you put it in this crock, and 48 hours after you do it, it starts burbling. And it's just going to work. Um, and See, I understand how we've stumbled into making bread or fire, you know, whenever, or, or, or putting meat on fire, but how do we stumble into this? Or do, is there any sense of, like, when we figured out how to do this? No, we, but, but we've been fermenting food for a very long time. I mean, you need, the, you need some crockery, although actually you don't, because the first ferments were in, in the earth. You would just dig a hole. And I saw this in China. So I was in China last year. And when you have excess cabbages, you dig a deep hole, and you bury them and cover it. And they, they will ferment. Um, right. A haggis, I think, uh, the, the original recipe of haggis, uh, you, you, you bury the stomach filled with yeah. all sorts of internal organs in the, on the heath. Well, and dig it up three weeks later. Right? Burying things is a, is a way, and that's one of the reasons I also call the section Earth is is a is a mm -hmm. primitive form of fermentation. And they found these uh, taro pits, you know, hundreds of years old, that are still, I mean, edible. You know, using the word uh, loosely, this mush <laughs> that you can eat and is very nutritious, but it's really old. Right. And in Iceland, um, uh, in Iceland, they bury shark. You know, they're great. Uh, I forget the name of it, but it's their great uh, delicacy that they insist that 
guess try. I had to try it recently. And um, the reason they bury this particular shark is sharks don't have kidneys, or uh, so uh, all the um, urea just kind of bleeds into their muscle. So it, <laughs> tasty. Yeah. They're not edible. Yeah. They're not edible until, until they've been fermented, and the fermentation breaks down the urea, and uh, and it's not wonderful. Uh, when it's all done. <laughs> it's like a it's like a really strong uh, scent of ammonia, uh, and it's cheesy in consistency. And you know they claim to like it, and they they are, oh don't you want to try a hot coral? It's called I think. And but I noticed that every bite is followed by a by a by a shot of schnapps. <laughs> that doesn't say to I me that. I think Haggis is eaten that way also. <laughs> It doesn't tell me people are savoring it. Um, but, you know, one of the things, every culture has a disgusting food. Well, I was going to say, like, so the stinky, I mean, we all, we like the stinky cheese. We, uh, you know, we I mean, do. Oh, we Asians do. don't. Right, Asians don't uh, traditionally like, a, like a wash Western wine. cheese. Yeah, yeah you right. show them a wash wine cheese, and Asians will, in, in China, will just run for the hill. I mean, they just think it's so gross. Yet, they love stinky tofu, which is, Really nasty, and you t you basically. <laughs> I'm not Asian. Um, you take a block of tofu, and then you uh, rot some vegetables, a mix of vegetables, mm -hmm. and just let them rot, not ferment. Rot. I mean, mm -hmm. yes, they're fermenting, but till it's black and viscous, and then you just submerge the tofu in that for weeks at a mm -hmm. time, and you take it out and you fry it, or you don't fry it, and you eat it, and the smell is just pure garbage. I mean, it's just, I mean, literally, it smells like garbage. And they love it. And they, and they, and they say that it's got a clean taste compared to cheese. Right. Um, because cheese has got a lot of fat, so the taste lingers in your mouth, which right. we like and they hate. Right. So I, I think it's very interesting that, mm -hmm. you know, one of the things culture is, is drawing lines around your group. And a disgusting food is a good way to draw lines around your group. <laughs> you know, we are the people who eat this. Right, and you're not, and you don't like it. And right, it's you know it's the it's the kosh root also the kosher. Right. We'll, we'll we'll get to the stinky in a minute. I I I I'm also just interested in sort of um, what what happens when you eat. Why do we eat pickled foods? Why do we eat fermented things? In other words, I understand that when you cook meat uh, over a fire, you know it breaks down uh, you know the, the proteins and whatnot, and or it, it allows you to get all the nutrients out of the meat much easier. Yeah. Right? and same with cooking on a stovetop and so on. But what, what, what are we getting out of eating microbial food? Well, we're getting a, a few things. One is that the fermentation process itself makes the food, uh, it partially digests the food, mm -hmm. so you use less of your own energy. And this is true for with all different kinds of cooking. You use less of your own energy to break down the food. The microbes have started the process. Right. It's partly cooked, partly digested. The other thing that the microbes are doing, though, is creating nutrients. Um, they are actually producing uh, vitamins of various kinds. You know, B12 is a vitamin that we, that animals can't, I'm sorry, that we can't, uh, uh, you, you get from fermentation or from animal flesh. Um, so you get B12 from it um, and, and a range of other uh, nutrients, plus the acids that are produced, uh, the lactic acid or the acetic acid, depending on the ferment, are very important nutrients. Um, so you're eating these microbes that have produced other food, um, and that's really healthy. And then there is some evidence that the microbes themselves uh, have an effect on your internal microbiota, it's called, the, the community that lives in your gut. Um, some of the bacteria that 
ferment food. Uh, Lactobacillus plantarum is the kind of climax species of a vegetable ferment. You know, <laughs> after it's gone on, there's tons of plantarum, right. and plantarum is an important bacteria that that seems to contribute to the health of the gut lining and uh, do some very good things for us. So you, you mentioned you, this little kingdom in, inside of us. Uh, let's let's just go right for the for yeah the, for the gross right now. Huh? <laughs> I mean, so. Describe that little kingdom. How big is it? What is what 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 does it look like? Uh, it doesn't look like much. Uh, <laughs> and I think that actually it's one of, one of the reasons that's that's kept us from understanding it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it looks like shit. Um, I I had an experience um, uh, when I was doing the research for this book. Of uh, I went to Iowa State, and uh, an animal scientist brought me to meet the this fistulated cow. Um, this is a cow that has a, a hatch surgically implanted in its flank, um, and they can open and close it and watch its digestion in real time. And the scientist, you know, he opened it up, and this is the rumen where the hay is being digested, or the grass, mm -hmm. and um, and it's just this bolus of hay and stuff, and it smelled, you know, uh, you know, pretty nasty. And um, and he said, "Reach your hand right in." Oh. <laughs> And I reached my hand in to the rumen, and it was warm and, and lots of partially digested hay. And, you know, the idea that what I was seeing was actually a very sophisticated ecological system, a community, with an order and a structure, such that there were certain kinds of microbes around the edges and certain kinds of ones in the middle, mm -hmm. and that some microbes were feeding other microbes, and some microbes were producing chemicals that were influencing the cows appetite um, and mood was just impossible to credit to look at this. But um, we're discovering that that is indeed what's going on down there. How many, uh, do we have a sense of the We have about the, a, the kilo, a kilo of uh, bacteria in your stomach. Uh, wow. I've, I mean, I've read from one pound to a kilo. And, um, and how uh, many species? About a hundred species. We thought for a while it was a couple hundred, but now it looks like it's about a hundred species. Um, and they're different in all right. of us. Right. Um, and uh, your diet. So when we're has eating, a big when we're eating things like sauerkraut, are we feeding that that ecosystem yeah. in some way? Are we keeping it, uh, maintaining it? Is it is it a is yeah? It a well, we're giving there, it or? a good food source. I mean, right. the problem is one of the problems with the Western diet that we're learning is that um, you need to feed these microbes, and they like slightly different food than you like. So, for example, we really like sugar, sweetness, you know, mm -hmm. refined flour, and things like that. We like these easily digested or absorbed things. They like plants, and they like fiber. Um, and we don't have, a, generally when we process food, we're removing fiber from it um, in one way or another. So we're kind of been, we've been starving the microbiota for a while uh, in the West, which has only recently been appreciated. Is, is my microbiota different from, say, my mother's? In, in terms of, I mean, has my diet changed yeah. that kingdom in some way? Well, it's not. That's not totally understood. Mm -hmm. Your uh, the initial kind of seeding of your microbiota comes from your mother uh, at birth. Right. Right. Um, if you're born by cesarean, it comes differently. And in fact, that, you know, that may explain why children born by cesarean have higher rates of allergies and their immune systems don't develop quite as uh, quite as well. Um, but that initial seeding of the microbiota uh, happens then, and then it happens from the environment. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, your microbiota will look a little like your father's, too, um, you know, a, a year or two out. Um, it looks very different while you're nursing. Um, and one of the really interesting um, uh, wake-up calls we had to the importance of this 
is uh, when we when we tried to understand milk. Um, mother's milk is, when you think about it, it's the only food, and I use the word designed advisedly, designed by natural selection, right? I mean, it was meant to be food, and so there presumably is nothing in it that doesn't have a very good purpose, okay? Otherwise, uh, it would natural selection would discard it because milk comes at a huge metabolic cost to the mother. I mean, mothers will literally dissolve their flesh to make milk, I mean, even when they're malnourished. So one of the things we didn't understand was that milk is full of a complex sugar, an oligosaccharide it's called, um, that babies can't digest. They don't have enzymes for it. So it passes through the, uh, the small intestine um, uh, unused. And there are more of these oligosaccharides than, than there are protein in mother's milk. This make, made no sense uh, until they figured out that uh, the bacteria love these oligosaccharides. And one bacteria in particular, Bifida infantis, which you'll see on the side of some yogurts. It's a probiotic. And so that mother's milk is designed to guide the development of the microbiota down a very specific path, because this is a very useful um, bacteria. It does a lot of good. Um, and it keeps other bad bacteria from getting a toehold. So um, that's a real... Uh, I think we have, to, we have to study that example, because basically it's telling you that a, a well-designed food, a perfectly designed food, right. should be feeding not just us, but the 100 trillion also. Right. And we need to design our food so it does the same thing. You know, I feel like when I hear a word like microbiota, I, I, just, I sense this slide into like some serious American quackery out there, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, but I, I realize that somebody's going to be selling me something that... That it's going to sound good, and you know, well, the, probiotics. And the metaphor that there's a trillion of these in us, and we have to feed this uh, ecosystem in order to keep ourselves healthy, totally makes sense. But it also totally makes sense for you know an infomercial, right? Right. right. Um, <laughs> so, can you give me any sense of where like the science ends and the quackery nonsense? begins? Yeah, and the quackery begins. Yeah, probiotics mm -hmm. is probably a good place to draw the line. I mean. Probiotics are, are good bacteria that are sold mm -hmm. in pill form, uh, and that there are some real questions. There's some interesting research that mm -hmm. suggests that some of them do things, that they're very helpful, um, and, um, but they don't take up residency. You don't find them after mm -hmm. you've eaten them. They don't seem to survive um, uh, in general. Nevertheless, some of them seem to have an effect on what's going on, mm -hmm. um, but they're being oversold. They're definitely being oversold. Um, and the numbers you get when you take a probiotic supplement are so small compared to eating something like sauerkraut, say, where you're getting, you know, billions and billions of, of little bugs. Um, so that I think that there is quackery around probiotics. Mm -hmm. we, we, there's something there, and we will design really good ones eventually, but we haven't done it yet. Um, uh, it's not to dismiss them all out of hand. I mean, there are cases where, where they've been shown to work, but they're definitely being oversold. Let's go back to the stinky for a second. So, uh, I didn't know we'd left it. Well, yeah, <laughs> we were just deep in the stinky. Now I want to go back to the surface of the stinky, like actually eating cheese and, and eating uh, things like kimchi. And, I mean, so you know, you sort of uh, you know reference that 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 one's love of stinky does seem to be either culturally derived or or, or geographically derived yeah. or something, right? Um, I mean, uh, does every culture on the planet have this sort of cascade of stinky foods and uh, <laughs> leading all the way down to like, you know, Limburger cheese or whatever. Yeah. I don't know that every culture has them. Every culture does has had its fermented foods. Mm -hmm. That's a universal. 
Um, and that's very interesting. And it makes sense, because before refrigeration, that was a very good way to preserve food, was to ferment. Right. Uh, it lasts a really long time. Um, and so we, as a species, have been eating lots of uh, uh, Lactobacillus plantarum for millions right. of years. And it, it may well be an important constituent mm -hmm. of, of the human diet, or should be. Um, the, uh, you know, I went to a, a kimchi museum in uh, Seoul. <laughs> One of two in Seoul, which are two of six in the country. <laughs> They're really serious about their kimchi. And, um, and I, was, I went in there, and there were, you know, uh, these dioramas. Are there not cheese museums in France? What? Are there not cheese Je museums yes, in France? Probably, of course yeah, there, there are, yeah. yeah. So um, I know, it seems funny to us. It's very serious to them. And there are, you know, dioramas of women rubbing spice into leaves mm -hmm. and, and beautiful crocs. Uh, you know, they bury these crocs outside for the kimchi and, and different kinds of peppers. And there were, like, one group of kindergartners after another was, um, was, was filing through, and they, they wear these great little yellow uniforms, and they all have these yellow backpacks. And, um, and I asked the docent, I said, um, why, you know, why are you bringing children here and um, uh, to the kimchi museum. And she said, totally straight face, children are not born liking kimchi. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, it's part of socialization. Mm -hmm. And we social, you know, there's certain foods we're socialized into. And, and, and some of these more um, exotic flavors, you need to be socialized. Um, we don't, it's not like sugar, where we have an innate... Right, I was going to say, like, you know, you think of all the vocabulary we have to describe our foods, right? Or, or just think of even the more sort of like, you know, uh, uh, you know Baroque language for describing wine. Yeah. Right? It's all floral this and, you know, uh, right. hints of, you know, nutmeg and whatnot. But, uh, but cheese. Well, pied de deux. Right, right. Yes. I mean, a stinky French cheese is, is a pied de deux, the, the feet of God. Um, which is to say, the stinky feet of God. I mean, that, that, it's a very interesting uh, phrase, and especially interesting when you learn a little bit about the microbiology, and it turns out that the bacteria that makes a washed rind, there's an you know, interesting uh, euphemism, cheese smelly, is very closely related to the, the, uh, its brevi bacterium that lives in your armpits and elsewhere on your body and gives uh, humans their scent. Um, uh, and that so what are we smelling when we smell cheese? Body odor. <laughs> Cheesemakers don't like to say this, um, but you're smelling the human body. I mean, it's not necessarily body odor, but these are animal smells, and, and that they're, they go really deep. I mean, our, our sense of smell is really underemployed, I think, in our society. And, um, and stinky cheeses, uh, you know, I, I, I found this, I wrote about this nun, Sister Noella, who, who makes a, a Connecticut uh, at, at uh, a cheese that you probably could find, maybe even around here, I don't know, or at the Abbey in Bethlehem, Connecticut. And she makes a uh, washed rind cheese, uh, a San Nectaire, or a Connecticut version of a San Nectaire. And she, one of the few cheesemakers who was willing to talk to me about um, the erotics of disgust, as, as only a nun can do. And, <laughs> And it was a very interesting conversation. And, um, and I, but I realized if you're in the food business, if you, you're not going to want to talk about disgust very much. It's not a way to sell food. Um, but she was really into it. And then she put me on to a, a philosopher cheesemaker in Paris named James Stillwagon. 
um, and told me about him. And he's kind of a connoisseur of this. And he's written some extraordinary descriptions of cheeses and about how, uh, you know, the, you know we, we don't have a vocabulary like wine, you know, that's floral and earthy and metallic and all this kind of stuff. Because if we did, it would be very uncomfortable with cheese. <laughs> so we just say it's powerful, you know, right. delicious. Mm, you know, I mean, we, we're, 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 I think we're repressing the vocabulary of cheese. And this guy, James Stillwagon, who has a website, or had a website, it seemed, it seemed to have been taken I'm down. I'm getting a sense he's not repressed. He is so not repressed. <laughs> he's, he's, uh, he's so extravagant in, in the way, but I quote him in the book in some length. Um, I really enjoyed his website. It's called Sex, Death, and Cheese. <laughs> <laughs> And they're all the same. And they're for him, they're all on a continuum. Yeah. So anyway, so cheese right. is a very interesting thing. Now you talk about how we discover these things. Right. I mean, cheese was probably discovered when some herder uh, opened up uh, the, the, the rumen of, a, of one of his ruminants, mm -hmm. of an animal, of a goat or a cow, mm -hmm. and discovered that, um, of a baby and discovered that there were these clumps of milk uh, in there. Because what happens is, when a baby drinks milk, the baby turns it into cheese in its gut, uh, in its stomach. And we have acids that do this. And in fact, this is still how we make cheese. You know, rennet is from the, the lining of uh, the first stomach of a ruminant. And it uh, rearranges the proteins in a way that forms they form this gel. And that is superior for the, uh, the baby's digestion. Um, not totally understood why, but it slows the absorption of the food and rearranges the proteins in a good way. So probably we found, we, you know, we found cheese. We didn't invent it and then figured out ways to make it. Or it may have been someone who just used a stomach as a um, carrying device for, for liquids and put mm -hmm. milk in it. And lo and behold, it turned right. into cheese. And the advantage of the cheese was, it, of course, it stayed fresh longer. Um, because it had these acids in it, uh, so it didn't uh, go bad. Um, it went bad in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we don't have a very good vocabulary for cheese, but but one of the things you write about in the book is that um, we have we almost have a, a, a kind of a, a surplus of vocabulary for uh, roasting whole animals outdoor. The, the barbecue <laughs> universe seems to have engendered, I think, what you, you call it, barbecue blarney. Yeah. Right? This is like this enormous amount of nonsense that comes out of the mouths of these uh, pit masters. I don't know where you got that. <laughs> um. <laughs> I learned a lot of this from this pit master right but, here. So what do you mean by barbecue blarney? What, what is that? And, and why do we talk about roasted animals differently than, than yeah. some cheese? Right. Well, there's a lot of... Uh, uh, self-flattery um, uh, that goes on in the barbecue <laughs> world. And I, you know, I found these guys are just some of the greatest bullshitters in, in the world. Uh, and, 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 you know, Jack comes out of this culture, actually, and is himself a very good pit master. And, um, and is that a euphemism yeah. or something? <laughs> he sensitized me to this. And, and these very fine distinctions, yeah. you know. Um, uh, there's so many ways to do barbecue. You know, you can do ribs, you can do uh, sausage, you can do whole hog, you can do shoulders, and every region of the South claims that it has the, the keys to the kingdom of barbecue and that there's no other way to make it. And so, 
if you're with someone in eastern North Carolina doing whole hog barbecue, and that's what I studied, so-called, um, uh, you'll talk about, well, what about the barbecue over in Lexington, you know, where they do shoulders? And they say, well, that's a food, but it's, it's not barbecue. <laughs> and, and then what about Texas? Yeah, that, you know, I, okay, but it's not barbecue. And um, so, and there are these maps. You turned me on to a map of the Carolinas, and, and it's the barbecue Balkans. And, and there's a line, and people know exactly where the sauce goes from tomato-based to, you know, yellow mustard-based. And there's a lot of tension along those lines. And, it, it, and drawing lines around acceptable and non-acceptable food is a big human preoccupation. And the, and the southern pitmasters are very good at it. So I decided that barbecue is kosher, kosher laws for goys, basically. Um, and that it gives you all the pleasures of saying this is kosher, this isn't kosher, with pork. Right, well, so. Which is great. <laughs> since you've hung out with so many pitmasters, uh, who is more rabbinical in their distinctions? Uh, redneck barbecuers or rabbis? I would say the redneck barbecuers, yeah. They're, yeah, because the rabbis are actually remarkably flexible. Uh, <laughs> You know, I make an exception for bacon. I mean, you know, you run into this, you know, observant Jews who will eat certain things that aren't. Um, uh, my my mother-in-law, for example, um, uh, I remember when my uh, my brother-in-law was dating someone uh, since married who who wasn't Jewish and went out to uh, to dinner with my mother-in-law who keeps kosher. Uh, at home, and, and she's asking carefully, like, well, does that pasta, it was Italian, does that have any, any pork in it, any bacon, any pancetta? And uh, he said, well, I'll check. And he said, well, if it does, I'll have the shrimp. <laughs> and Martha's like, huh? How does this work exactly? <laughs> so anyway, yeah, no, the pitmasters are definitely more rigid about all this. Um, I, I know. But uh, let me just add one thing. The reason, though, I realize that they've dressed this up and fetishized sauce and the, and, the, and, the, and the kind of wood you use and the kind of heat you use is that it's really simple. Right. <laughs> it's just time and heat and meat and you can't screw it up. And so there's been a, a, a real effort, I think, to overcomplicate barbecue that, you know, I mean, it's like grilling. It's like men grilling, you know, oh, you could never figure this out. I think there's a whole, you know, there's a whole genre of those foods, right? I mean, uh, I grew up with fried chicken, too, and everybody, oh, you yeah, know, by right. God, get into a fried chicken conversation. It's almost, you know, like barbecue. Um, so I, I know, like, like, uh, like me, you probably, you collect uh, savannas of Africa metaphors. I do. <laughs> um, uh, you know, from the time I was a kid, I, I, somebody is always coming forward with a new savannas of Africa theory. You know, it's, right. uh, when did we become human? Was it when we uh, stood upright? Uh, was it when we, uh, you know, learned how to uh, throw a spear of some kind? Or, Funeral rituals, just, you know, genital display. One of those many, many things suddenly made us human, right? Um, and, and in your book, you elaborate on um, the, the Harvard guys. Uh, Richard theory, Rangham, yeah. Rangham, whose, you know, argument is, is that when we learned to cook and, learned and, and, and shortened uh, the amount of time we spent eating, we opened up this whole new uh, moment for culture and, yeah. and, and growing our brains and so on. So can give me the... Um, the Michael Pollan, like, two-minute history of mankind. Like, um, you know, uh, go all the way, homo erectus, and, and bring me to the microwave. What's that, what's that wow. narrative? 
Well, the, the, the cooking hypothesis. <laughs> we only hypothesis. have a few more minutes. Yeah, yeah right. OK. The cooking <laughs> hypothesis, I, we're going to have time for questions? Yeah, yeah, I want to say So maybe time after this, yeah, we so this, this will be our last. Uh, um, is, uh, was put forward by an anthropologist and primatologist named Richard Wrangham at Harvard. Um, and he's trying to answer this, this mystery of evolution, which is at a certain point, the human brain gets, or, or the proto-human brain gets really large, and the gut gets relatively small compared to primates of our size. And it was often thought it was meat-eating that gave us this additional, you know, caloric bonanza uh, that allowed us uh, to, uh, to, to grow these big brains and all these other things flow from that. But uh, raw meat is very hard to digest, actually. And you do need a lot of gut to do that and, and a lot of chewing. And, um, and so his hypothesis that it was that it was when we discovered how to control fire and cook meat and other things over fire that we became human. Um, and the reason is that once you cook things, they're much more nutritious. They, uh, you use less of your own energy to digest them. They're bro partially broken down. And, um, and so what it gave our species was, uh, and also it detoxifies certain foods. So for instance, tubers, which are often poisonous, eaten raw, um, potatoes and um, uh, cassava and things like that, if you cook them, you can eat them. So think about that. It gives us access to a source of calories no other animal has. Um, it's an enormous boon to our species. And when we started eating cooked food, he hypothesizes, and, it, it's, and it's hard to prove, um, um, our brains got bigger uh, because we had all these extra calories, and our guts shrank, and we could reapportion that. And if you look at primates our size, um, they have to, they have very long, uh, you know, digestive systems, and they spend about six hours a day in the mere act of chewing. Now, you're not going to have art and culture and opera if you're spending six hours a day chewing. I'm racing ahead now. That explains a lot about my home state. But anyway. <laughs> So um, this, and, and you know, chimps, for example, um, hunt, as it turns out, and like to eat meat, but they only have 18 minutes in which to do everything besides gathering their food and chewing it. Oh, so they're stressed out, you know, <laughs> middle brow workers also. <laughs> so anyway, so it's, it should be called the chewing hypothesis. Right. Um, Anyway, it was a really important development. And it's funny, we kind of sense this too. I mean, uh, James Boswell said in the 1800s, I guess, that we were the, the cooking creature. Mm -hmm. And uh, Claude Levi-Strauss, uh, you know, pointed out that the, the, the moving from raw, the raw to the cooked is, is the creation of culture. Um, it's where we bring our intentionality, our traditions, to this raw stuff of nature. Turns out there are some animals who cook, ferment. Um, by burying things and things like that, but basically we are the and some chimps like you know scavenge in burnt forests, right? I mean there, there are yes, there, there well, are that's interesting. E evidence of uh, you could see why we'd be predisposed yeah. to cook food yeah. because uh, there are a lot of animals that when a forest fire comes through they go through and they really like the roasted you know chipmunk and um, uh, or or certain nuts that have right. been cooked that right. they will Toasted, they will yeah. yeah a lot of creatures will go into a burnt forest right, right. and they really like that right. that kind of barbecue. Okay, one, one last mega question, and then we're going to turn to the audience. But, um, you know, uh, in, in, the, in the narrative of your book, uh, you talk about the 20th century processing foods, and then, of course, we're now transitioning into this, like, different era of processing entire meals, right? Yeah. 
Um, ultra processed food, it's called. Ultra processed food, right? So, um, I mean, what what's the trajectory you see, do you see? I mean, are we? Is there a way back for us to start cooking again, or is there a new sort of forward where we, you know, don't lose what we have? Or, um, I mean, is there is there some way out of this kind of processed, uh, disease ridden, uh, you know, non cooking world that we've seem to have created for ourselves? Well, you know, there, I think there are two paths open to us. One is that uh, the food industry is optimistic that they can design healthier and healthier foods that mm -hmm. solve a lot of our problems. Oh. Um, I'm really skeptical that they can do this um, for reasons having to do with their business model, for reasons having to do with uh, the fact that one of the... If you think about the history of food technology, um, we have this glorious history of cooking, which has made food more uh, nutritious, easier to digest, um, uh, you know, given us new nutrients, all this kind of stuff that goes on from this discovery of fire all the way to, I would date, 1880 or so, when we figured out how to refine white flour. From that time forward, our processing of food has made it less healthy. Um, it's a really interesting uh, turn in human history um, that, uh, you know, we almost got too smart for our own good. And we figured out ways to process food that made it uh, superficially attractive, but in fact, for our health, really bad. I don't know if I can point to an example of food processing since 1880 that has really been a net gain to public health. And, um, uh, uh, you know, frozen vegetables, yes. Canning vegetables, yeah, this is, these, are, these are net gains, but I think they come in around that same period. Um, so I think we're not going to get out of this box, which is to say the chronic disease that's becoming so epidemic in our culture, unless we rebuild the culture of cooking. It's not going to be the same culture of cooking because it's going to have to be shared. It can't be a female culture of cooking. Um, I think the challenge is going to be to get our children into the kitchen, uh, to teach cooking again in schools. Again, not gendered as home ec was, but um, to everyone. Um, and get people to uh, realize that what seems like drudgery is really the most wondrous alchemy. Um, and that there is pleasure to be had and interest to be had in this work. And that we have to change our perception of it. And, and that's what I hope this book does. This book is not a lecture or an argument. Um, it's really just a discovery of that this, these miracles available to us, this power to make alcohol. What an amazing thing. You can, at home, make this substance that will change your experience of reality. That's great. That's great stuff. Um, and that we've, given, we've deprived ourselves of some interest and pleasure by letting other people do this for us, and that we need to reclaim this. So that's my hope, and I'm, you know, hopelessly optimistic, as, as you know. Um, but that's what I'd, I, you know, I'd like to see. And there's some, there's some encouraging evidence. The, the decline I described since 1965, since 2008, home cooking has, has come up a little bit. It may just be a product of the economy, um, right. because cooking is economical, we, we forget. Um, but maybe it's the sign of, uh, of a change. The Frankie Program in Science and the Humanities at Yale University was generously endowed by Richard and Barbara Frankie. The program aims to foster communication, mutual understanding, collaborative research, and teaching among diverse disciplines. The preceding conversation with Michael Pollan took place in Yale's Whitney Humanities Center on March 30, 2013.